Welcome to the Operate Podcast, where we give you a behind-the-scenes look at company building from the perspective of the builders themselves. This is how we operate. Okay, welcome everybody. Here we are for another live show this evening, and I'm delighted to have with me Kerry Ransom. Everyone who's um, listening in and joining the show, uh, we are doing essentially a, a live show, but it's going to be a joint podcast. Uh, so what that means is obviously this is going to go um, on to the Scale Up Your Business podcast. And then, Kerry, you've got your own podcast. you want to introduce that to everybody here as well? I do. Yeah. So I, uh, for over a year now, I've been doing, uh, in many cases, at least weekly, if not multiple times a week, uh, a show I call Accelerate Show. Super excited to to do this as a crossover. Yeah, no, it's awesome. It's one of those um, serendipitous things, right? So we we kind of connected randomly on LinkedIn. I think it was like, you know, into the, the, the sort of random um, connection right. note goes right. out there. And and then we sort of thought, hold on, we're kind of really at, you know, we're right in the journey here, aren't we, in terms of the part, parts we play. Um, and then we connected and decided to do this. And, and what we thought we'd do today is talk about entrepreneurship um, for the next decade. So this is going to be quite an interesting topic, but it's also going to be a difficult topic, I think, because mm-hmm. obviously we're going through so much change. You just called that out. We're seeing the whole pandemic. Not just that, we're seeing investment changing globally. We're seeing people look at risk and return differently. Um, so we're going to try and predict a few of the trends. And to be really honest with you, Kerry, this is this is not prepared. I haven't written down the five key trends. Yep, me neither. We're, we're going to make it up as we go along, you know, from our insight and experience, of course. That's right. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Okay, so let's kick it off. So um, let's just do a bit, let, let's get the uh, the audience just understanding a little bit more about your background, Kerry, sure. um, and kind of how that's led to what you do now. So you know, the, I think it's funny you bring up trends. You know, I I think I shared this when we met. I grew up in a family business, and we were retail merchants, and my family uh, ran a store for 146 years until two wow. years ago. And it still it still runs, but it's not in my family anymore. And so to think about something that can last that long as we sit here today looking forward 150 years is almost impossible for me to even believe to be possible. And I think you know we've seen for so long, and, and part of what what really ate away at me when I was a kid was thinking, I don't know if this can go another hundred years. And I, I, if I were to get involved in this beyond just sort of growing up in this business, what would it look like 10 years from now, 20 years from now? And as I looked out and I just had such um, challenge because I saw a lot of the other retail merchants in my hometown disappearing. They, you know, Walmart and people like that were coming in and, and displacing that local merchant. And I felt like there were new types of businesses that I needed to probably be a part of. And so very early in my career, I got into the software industry and I started to realize, you know, we, we didn't have to have money tied up in inventory that was sitting in our back room. And um, once you built this software, you could distribute it over the internet. And I was in a, the first software business I was in was in the nineties and we were convincing people to buy software through a web browser. And this was in the days when people didn't even, in many cases, have a persistent internet connection. They were dialing up. That's, to that's like a super early stage, man. It's super that's early, like, right? That's before, yeah. before Amazon thought they were going to survive. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so, but yet, I saw that future, and I said, "This is incredible. You can create something, and now you almost have the world as your as 
internet becomes more proliferated. And, and obviously, I, I wasn't forecasting that we were all going to have these things in our hands that were persistently connected with, with unbelievably compute power. But what what uh, did you think back then? I mean, like, you know, because that's, I mean, I know a lot of people who played around with sure. sort of the internet, as we'd call it, which wasn't even really the internet as we know it now. You're right. It was kind of these weird dial-up things that made that's those right. deep noises. I mean, what was the what was the vision then to think that this was going to be something that was so changing? Or were you just taking a leap of faith? No, I think at that point, I just saw like there were there were needs to automate so many business processes. And, you know, in the case of this first company I was in, you know, you were replacing rote routine work that people were doing day in and day out in a very paper based manual way. And I just looked across these companies and saw countless examples across the business where people were doing routine work that could be automated. And I said, there are going to be countless business applications like this. And that shouldn't require somebody to have this massive infrastructure of servers and hardware just to, to automate things. And that's where I saw that the internet could just be so powerful. And so I, I sort of was hooked at that point. And it was, if you can build it once and distribute, sell it as many times as you can, there's a tremendous amount of leverage uh, in that business. And I think that's what got me really excited. And, you know, you fast forward over 20 years and I've still stayed with that. And I think really, as I look at most of my career, it's been about finding that need, that problem that a significant number of people have and saying, okay, how can we make it better, faster, cheaper for them to accomplish that or, or stop having to do the same thing over and over? And I tend to call those things inhuman going you know know, what occurs to me though right you know what occurs to me is like the way you describe that there's people out there now who still haven't got that that's right you know i mean the number of people i come into who have got businesses that are they might they might have a really good proposition and their go to market in terms of their sales and marketing activity is pretty strong but they haven't leveraged or automated core processes so therefore they're not operating efficiently some businesses have got really really good value propositions but they're not making any money because they're still so um, focused on high expensive labor based activity as opposed to a technology. That's right. Well, and and to me, this is now foundational as you think about starting companies. So as I think about uh, the two of us, we, you know, we're, I'm coming in and looking at the core value proposition and saying, okay, is this compelling? Is this new and disruptive? And can it start to scale over time? And then in many cases, I look at someone like you getting involved and saying, okay, now, what are the next sets of levers that we should be thinking about to really scale this? And you know, I spent some time in that, call it private equity growth world. And historically, the, that group has been more of a financially driven optimization. How do we yeah. change the capitalization structure? Maybe we layer some debt on to have cheaper capital. And I think what you and I both know is that now a lot of those growth levers are not financial, but they are things like system or other types yeah. of investments yeah, changed, that you can make that, yeah. It's changed massively. And and again, just for your audience, just to kind of, um, I'll do a, a very quick kind of intro. So, I mean, I did um, around about 10 years in private equity. Um, and actually my first, I suppose, introduction to private equity was with, with a company called Getty Images. Mm-hmm. Um, which if it's it's a bit of a case study in in how you do successful scale up. I think it was five exits 
mm. um, from IPO back to private equity to private sale back to private equity. Mm -hmm. So um, the mastermind behind that, a guy called Jonathan Klein, he effectively sold the same company five times. Brilliant. And walked away with hundreds of millions <laughs> of dollars. Um, but, um, you know, I spent years doing that. But I, was, I wasn't the financial guy, to your point. I was the guy who was looking at all the other dynamics and characteristics. And you're 100% you're correct in saying that private equity, when I first got into it, was about financial gearing, financial leverage, mm -hmm. you know, how you could um, look at cost of capital differently, those sort of things. And then something started to change about five years ago is that um, I think it was partly because there was a different generational workforce coming through. There were different opportunities around technology, uh, more competition, more globalization. To me, competition and sort of the yeah. availability of money broadly has driven, it's like you have to create more value. Yeah, well, it's just it, there's just too many choices, right? In terms of those things, there's there's more investors because there's there's more access to capital and there's more entrepreneurs. And I forget the current figure, but someone said it's like 400 new startups a week in um, San Francisco alone, or sort of you know um, th that parts of the U.S. So anyway, so um, what happened, and this is the transition, is I was effectively the sort of turnaround guy. So I was going into investments that weren't going well, partly because you know the financial thing wasn't the only thing that needed to be looked at. And then I would start to look at the kind of what you would come sometimes call a little bit softer areas, but powerful areas. So purpose and vision, people, we'd look at process, we'd look at predictability of revenue, we'd look at value propositions. And it wasn't, wasn't so much about the individual components of the carry, it was actually about how those things work like a well-oiled machine. Mm -hmm. And that's where private equity is now, is that most of the progressive firms, most of the successful firms, have that operating and strategic layer in their um, yeah. in their investment thesis as much as they do the financial side. Mm -hmm. So, how you just to ask a question there? Because I agree with you. It's it's it, you know I I spent some time as I said in the more traditional PE firm. Um, even they, I've stayed friends with them. They they've even had to become much more innovative in how they think about where the value can be created over time. How do you think about true innovation, true startup inside uh, a private equity owned or, or controlled company today? Yeah, I mean, what I have seen, and again, it's not um, one of those um, sort of ubiquitous things where everyone's yeah. doing the same thing, but a lot of the more, um, again, progressive private equity firms are moving into what would be the traditional VC world. Mm -hmm. So they're making speculative bets on businesses that are pre-profit, which is usually is uncommon. Because yes. it's normally it's normally obviously a profit based multiples as opposed to revenue or anything like that, so I'm starting to see that, um, and I'm starting to see uh, private equity firms actually sponsor venture incubators, mm. which is interesting in its own right, so that they can get first tabs on anything that looks like it's interesting coming through that hopper. So for mm -hmm. me, the world of partnerships, and actually we can talk about this in trends later, but partnerships and collaborations, joint ventures, I'm seeing much more of that going on. Um, the contradiction to that is this, though. I'm also seeing um, private equity um, being very, how do I call this, discerning is probably the best word, mm -hmm. about, about all these different startups. Because, like, there's so many things. I'll, I'll tell you a very quick story because it's funny. I was in New York about 18 months ago, and I was looking to buy a HR tech business to bolt on to another suite of businesses in a PE-backed um, group. Sure. And I sat there uh, looking for a very specific type of HR tech business, and I had six businesses pitching to me. And I kid you not, 
the only difference that I could see from the pitch, and again, the very limited due diligence I, I, I had, was that the first guy who presented was the third employee of Facebook. And even he didn't tell me that. Someone had to tell me that afterwards, but that was the only thing. If someone said, which one are you going to invest in, Nick? I'm kind of going, well, maybe the Facebook one. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. they all look the bloody same. And there is a little bit of that risk, I think, at the at the at the sort of innovation slash you know early stage startup um, environment at the moment. So sure. what I'm saying. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that's if you really look at what's happened, and you know, this has led to why we've even ended up starting what we started um, with the venture studio. But if you look at what's happened in many respects, I would say venture capital has largely gone the path of private equity. And what I mean is you know, the private equity firms have just continued to scale in size, assets under management, bigger deals. And this collecting assets has been a big part of the job. And and frankly, when you're managing billions and billions of dollars, um, you, you can get pretty wealthy just managing that from a management fee standpoint. And I think that's what much of venture capital has done. And they've justified it by saying, well, you know, it's easier than ever to start companies. There are going to be many that look the same at the early stages. Let's see which ones actually start to emerge. And then we'll drown them in capital to give them an advantage by being best funded. So they can be more aggressive in building out their go-to-market and building out their marketing in really investing ahead of their profitability will really equip them. I call it, you know, money as a strategic advantage. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the first time in my lifetime that I've seen this really happening in the venture world. And so what that's ended up doing is creating this environment at the early stages where founders in many cases are are banging their heads against the wall, trying to figure out like, how do I, stand out. If I've been the first employee at Facebook, that gives me some pretty significant advantage. But if, but if I uh, have domain expertise or I have a really compelling idea, I'm going to have to scrape and I'm going to have to get a lot farther along on very little. to, to and, and it almost then becomes lucky at times to emerge in a more competitive environment. And so a big part of what we started to look at there is we said, okay, what are the early levers that can create advantage. And what we ended up landing on was this idea that talent and experience can be a real strategic value in those early stages, that it's very difficult to recruit early stage talent um, that's capable. You may have- What you're saying there is if, if, if I did happen to have the third employee of Facebook in my team, I should be telling that story. Oh, for sure. And or, out. I mean, you know, right. because- yeah. Because people will give you credit, even if you shouldn't get credit for that. I know. People I know. will give you credit, right? I know. Well, it's I still mean, like, even- you know, the world, the world, as much as I hate to dumb it down too much, but the, the world of kind of, you know, picking investments is still a little bit like Shark Tank and, and Dragon's Den over here. If the person's investable or the team's investable, then that's one of the risk things. What, um- sure. that's, that's been our whole MO is to say, look, if, if I can give you better people, at the earlier stages of your business than you're likely to be able to afford or know, then that has the potential to create much better early outcomes for you. It's that whole idea. And also the difference between success and failure. For sure. sure. It's a risk management. um, 
that's right. What are the dynamics? I mean, so okay, so let's just let's go back one one step because I'm just curious about how you do this. So, so what are the you know he said beforehand about um, there's more pressure or more competition for these businesses to kind of get ahead and stand out and step up. When you're validating these businesses, what are you looking for to make that decision as as the VC, as the person who's going to put some capital in? What what are those characteristics? So. From the founder or founding team standpoint, we're looking for, um, you know, a compelling founding team. And, and that doesn't always look the same, but compelling could be they, they have a really unique perspective. They have an insight into why they're doing this. And it could be that they come from that world, that they've been in it. They've seen something that others just haven't seen. It could be that they have some sort of breakthrough technology that they've developed as a technical founder, um, but it, it could be a business founder or a, a technical founder from our perspective, but they have something compelling about them. Then really for a big part for us is commitment that they have decided they they have to do this. It, they're just at this place where this is calling them, It's bur- the fire's burning, they have to go pursue this because they feel compelled that, that this is just the world that they need to be in and the world needs to, to have them in it doing this, right? So there's that commitment that we really want that's going to carry them through because invariably they're going to run into challenges. So we want that. And then for us, the other big ones are that they're coachable and collaborative because our attitude is that if they feel like they have to make every decision, that they have all the answers, there are a few of those people in the world, but that's the rare exception. And that generally speaking, building great companies is a team sport. And so if they're going to be open to coaching, open to collaboration with us in the early stages, to me, that sets a tone for the kind of company they're likely to build, that that's going to make it a more attractive company to really good talent who can feel like if I come in here, I'm going to have a voice. I'm going to have a seat at the table. I can do good work. And so we really look and heavily index for those coachable collaborative founders because you, you need to really get the most out of everybody around the table that you can. And it's rare that that one person is going to have all the answers and they're going to have a better chance at finding the best answers by really facilitating a much more collaborative uh, environment. And so those are those are kind of the keys out of the gate for us. And then we start to look at the market and try to understand what the dynamics of change and disruption and competitiveness in this particular market space that we see. And is there a place? Is there a, is this dominant and it's going to be very difficult to enter? Or is there a change un- underway that allows some some new entrants to come in and really make waves. Are you looking for um, proof of that at this stage? You know, do they have to have some sort of MVP which has some sort of customer validation? So we we don't require that. Okay. We may, as part of our diligence, start to do some of that ourselves. I mean, one one of the things that I really uh, bring as as my key part of my value is just the fact I've worked in so many different industries in so many different types of businesses with different business models that I I use a lot of that experience to help me with my process in in looking at this at a much more abstract level so if there are things like regulatory or 
uh, other factors at play, I can look and see, okay, is that going to be a big impediment or is that potentially a, an enabler to change? One of the best businesses I've ever been a part of was one where the, a regulatory change drove massive demand. And all we had to do was just provide the product that allowed the customers to check a couple boxes to make sure they were continuing to be able to operate. And so actually the go-to-market was maybe the easiest I've ever seen because we just said, hey, this keeps you out of trouble. It, it helps you comply. We're good guys. Sign up here and you're on your way. And so it was just like fish in a barrel. And so sometimes that may be looked at on the surface as an impediment, but could actually be a really interesting uh, value enabler, right? So I think it's it's all that experience. And then often I'll do some of my own independent research by calling other people to just get their perspective. Because as you know, you know, with founders, when they're committed and they're convicted, they're going to have a good sales story as to why they're going to go do this, how they're going to win. And I often say their, their pitch deck is them at their very best. I, I want to get into the reality of the situation and find out, okay, what's this really going to take? Yeah. <clears throat> and what I find when you get the handoff to kind of my part of the world, yeah. um, what I see a lot of, and this is kind of one of the potential watchouts and or failures, mm -hmm. is that the, the problem that existed when the business was started by the founder um, and, and the solution was also valid at that point yes. is no longer relevant or valid. Okay. And, and we'll talk about that in a trend in a second, because I think it's probably the first trend I'll kick off with this evening. But um, then you find that the founder gets blinkered because they're so in love mm -hmm. with the thing that happens, you know, when they begin the business, okay. that it's no longer, as I said, you know, successful going forward. Okay. Um, well, that's why you see that seasonal, right? I call it seasonal, that, you know, we, we all, as we're involved, and I, I've been fortunate to go through many, many different seasons of business and business change. And I, I have this weird willingness to sort of look at myself and my role and the business and really do that evaluation. And I, I find that a lot of people, especially when they start to wrap their identity up in that business, it's hard to be objective about that, right? That idea. That's a key word. I'm sure you've had this conversation before where you've said, if we were going to go out and recruit a CEO for this business today at this stage, would you be in our candidate list? And well, I'm, I'm having that conversation with someone right now, sure. actually. Sure. And, you know, and I use the example that just because you guys had the, um, the firepower, the ignition to start the business, the idea doesn't mean that you're going to be the best to take it forward to the next level. And that's one of, it actually happens to be one of my definitions of scale up is that, a person who is brilliant at starting a business is not necessarily the person who can take it to the next level or to an exit because it takes a very different mindset and skill set, set of experiences. And to your point, great word, a different identity. Mm -hmm. And and I think a willingness, you know, for that person who wants to learn those new skills or adapt, it can be possible, but you, you have to be much more intentional about it. And I think we as um, I've, I've tried to do some of that while I've been in businesses. So most of my career has been on the operating side, on the inside in various roles. And I've sort of had every job. And I feel like that's part of what gives me the ability to be pretty objective and say, you know, I, I may be able to, you know, you need somebody to start the marketing function. Okay, I'll start it. But 
once it gets to a place where it needs to really be managed and optimized, I'm going to probably opt to go find somebody who enjoys that and is probably far better at that than I am. And so I'll, I'll go find my own replacement. And if that means it's time for me to move on out of the company, okay. If there's another role that I can go take on. But I think that it's, it, to me, it's just always been trying to lead by example and I think sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't matter. They, they're going to hold on regardless. It's a rare, I mean, in my, in my experience, I'm sure you've got um, a similar view. It's, it's a rare leader, a founder, probably the best way to say it, the very rare founder who can feel comfortable with that. You know what okay. I mean? Particularly, particularly some of the ones who have kind of, you know, been thinking about this business for ages. They've, they've been growing, you know, they're not like a quick startup. They might be two or three years in and they still want the thing to start to show some signs of growth. Um, admitting at that point in time that, you know, they're not necessarily the right person at the leadership part of the business or conversely giving up that role because, you know, a lot of these people have quite high control needs as well. For sure. You know, but that's what also makes them great at the the beginning because they're so, if you you take the the pro-typical jobs type of thing, Steve Jobs, um, you know, there's an obsessiveness there, you know, with with the particulars, the standards, you know what I mean? Um, Elon Musk is similar. Yes. Um, a lot of people, I've never met him, but a lot of people say he's quite difficult to work with uh-huh. because he's standard. Yeah, surprising, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, it's interesting. Well, let's let's talk about let's talk about some trends. Um, as I said, we'll riff a bit here. We'll make this up as we go along. First one that occurs to me is, um, and we've talked a little bit about it, is pace of change. So yeah. rear view mirror, you know, forward looking mirror, forward looking. Um I think things are just accelerating to, to a level of pace that it's very hard for, for entrepreneurs, investors, just us as consumers in the world to keep up with. That's right. Yeah, I totally agree. It's, a, a, you know, the, the research that I've seen shows that the pace of change and our human adaptability to that pace really converged in within the last, I mean, you can't pinpoint a specific time, but within the last five to 10 years is really when that eclipsed. And so you think about human history for, you know, centuries, millennia, um, we were able to always stay ahead and adapt. And now this pace is, has gone beyond our ability. And so as I think about how that plays out, it's it's actually pretty scary in some respects because you you have to think about like how do we bring everybody along and whether that's just you look at it how does it manifest itself in just the day-to-day of you know these bigger companies are coming in scaling more rapidly than we've ever imagined i mean we have you know multiple trillion dollar market cap companies we've never seen that before and then I think we'll see companies of giant size fall more rapidly than we've ever seen before as well. And so all those things are are causing disruption, but also causing new opportunities to emerge. And so how do we equip people with the skills? How do we bring them together rapidly and spin them up on the things that they need to do? And then let them move on to the next thing. And so I think the idea of of how corporations exist, what the structures and the processes of how people work together within them is almost um, unrecognizable to you and I as we think about it today and what we've seen as we look forward, right? And so 
I, I think the imagination that we have as humans is the only thing that will hold us back, but it's pretty fascinating to think about. Yeah, and I think I think that the thing that's interesting to me around that is, you know, again, if pace is quickening, then um, speed to market and all those things becomes, you know, critical. Um, you know, whereas people used to work on annual plans, I now advise 90-day plans, you know, um, and then, you know, literally a week matters in a 90-day plan, whereas a missing a couple of weeks in a year plan, you can probably use that as a bit of an excuse. Oh, well, you know, we've got plenty of time. But the thing that really um, I'm interested in seeing is how us as humans evolve. Because mm -hmm. you're starting to see, you know, that you've got the whole mental health thing going on. You've got um, the fact that, you know, 2007 was when the iPhone was properly launched. So the birth of the app. And like, you know, again, those pictures of everyone just staring at their phones all the time, you know. And so I, I'm curious about how that's going to, you know, if things get quicker and quicker and quicker, we're, we're, we're plugged in even more. What's that going to do to us as humans? How are we going to adapt? That, that's, that's the thing for me, you know. Um, just to finish it, Elon Musk uh, said something on the Joe Rogan podcast. I'm not sure if you saw it. But he said, he said, we are already cybernetic organisms. Yes, we are infinitely without with our smartphone. We are infinitely more intelligent. We can answer any problem in the world. So we're already there, and it's quite an interesting way of putting it. Yeah, and it's and you know I can I'll admit I mean I have somewhat schizophrenia, um, and partly because even you mentioned this earlier. I I go you know in some respects like I've been at this for a long time, and yet there's still plenty of people doing okay that aren't digitally native that aren't really thinking about this and are still um, you know much more in this sort of singular almost I call it like physical manual world and I look at you know a lot of those things and say it's not that we need to um, completely eliminate that but that we we have so much human creativity and potential that can be unlocked if we're not distracted or doing lower order activities. Yeah. And so I think there's just so much, and, and we're seeing early signs of that. When you think about some of these crowdsourcing platforms where you can crowdsource knowledge or creativity, I, I look at those things and say, this is really fascinating because it's early days and how we can go identify the people who are best to do these very specific things and then bring them together from all over the world is pretty exciting to think about what that can create when you pull all that human potential and creativity together. Yeah, and, that, and that, that's definitely the opportunity. I mean, I was um, reading an article the other day about the difference between functional versus vital. Mm. And uh, it was an interesting article. It basically said that, you know, the functional tasks, the things that can be automated, <clears throat> that's where the world is going to go. You know, natural selection, if you want to call it, will take us there. But vital tasks, you know, the, the things that we would call um, characteristics of the human spirit, the emotional mm. side, even though there's, there's attempts with AI to try yeah. and crop that. No one's really cracked that yet. Not to the level that the human, you know, human brain, the human emotion can can drive so for me it's interesting to see how that evolves to some extent as an industry in its own right and the That's connection right. of those points as opposed to it just being in terms of the jobs that are there okay. yeah all right so here's another one um and then and then i'm gonna and then you can throw a couple in i've only got two so <laughs> that's it the, the other one is um is is this idea of collaboration and partnership mm 
Um, and and I, this comes a little bit from my sort of last few years when I was working very directly with the PE firms. I still work with them now, but when I was working in them. And it comes back to the concept of a roll-up. So for everyone listening who don't know what that is, private equity will normally buy um, a portfolio company. So they'll invest in a space and they'll choose usually something that's got profit, it's got stability, it's got some really good kind of um, uh, intangibles of, of um, sustainability as well. And then they'll bolt together a number of companies to create a group. So they get disproportionate value, but disproportionate scale, and therefore what is perceived as lower risk, et cetera, et cetera. Um, my, my view going forward is you're going to get a divergence of those things. Mm-hmm. So you're going to get, um, you're going to get micro niche, small, but, but really focused and very agile. And then you're going to get these massive groups mm-hmm. and the middle, this is a view, will get squeezed a bit. So it's a little bit like you can't just sit in the middle anymore. You've got to make a choice. That's right. And, and, you know, that's a bit of a different dynamic, I think, than what we've seen if, again, if we look backwards, what do you think about that? I totally agree. You know, I, I I've got a friend, um, and we, we talk about this idea of kind of the, a modern day company town to some extent. And what does that yeah. look like? And if you have the really large group, uh, they're they're going to have a, a hurdle rate at which they're not going to lift their finger as they get larger until something is of sufficient size or potential. And so if you think about that, that naturally is going to stifle innovation. And so how do you connect these two poles? One option is to just equip a whole group in a community and say, look, you work on these really front end ideas and innovation, and we'll be the place where you can t- bring it to both vet it and commercialize it. And so you have people over here working in these very micro niche ways, but then they bring things over when it's time to really scale it up. And I think that can serve both of those groups equally and that that may be the way that we start to see more of that happening. And so to your point on collaboration and partnership, it's the, the big company being much more transparent and open about things that they think they may need and then equipping people with that knowledge to be able to think about it and work on that. And I think that's where there's often been a separation. I see that in my own community where many of the startups that we work with where there are bigger companies around here that should be logical early customers, they just don't think that way as early adopters. And so in many cases, these startups have to go to other markets to find early adopter enterprise customers, which is wildly inefficient. And so I think what that should hopefully do is create some of these centers of knowledge because I think a lot of the the, the research is showing that when you get a cluster of talent around a, around an industry in a geographic area, that that's probably the hardest thing to move, that people will, will plant and that knowledge will plant and that companies will set up around that. And you, you really do start to create these knowledge clusters and capability clusters. So I think you're just going to see people continue to invest and invest in those to really establish those centers. And that then just becomes a structural thing of how do they work together more effectively. Yeah. No, interesting. I did have another one, but I'll, but I'll let you jump in now. (laughs) So, um, you know, you mentioned, you know, 400 startups a day in, you know, San Francisco, you know, we, we have had a actually somewhat epidemic issue in the U S over the last 10 years in that the number of new startups, new, new entrepreneurial endeavors are down 
about a million from the prior 10 years. So about 100,000 a year fewer, which is surprising given that the narrative out there, I mean, I'm in probably my own echo chamber of all this news around startups, but people aren't starting companies at the rate that they were. What do you think has to happen? Do you think that continues? Do you think there's a change to that as a trend? Yeah, I've got one of the things that I think um, was happening before we we reached the pandemic um, or had the pandemic or we're still living the pandemic, whatever you want to call it. It's becoming just a thing now um, is that the world of work was changing anyway. And there were a lot of studies done on by the big consultancy firms. Deloitte did Workforce 2020 and you know talked about half of your workforce in the future won't be employed by you, et cetera, et cetera. So what I think, and this will answer the question, what I think I am seeing is that um, there'll be more businesses that are launched. And again, in the UK, we, we typify that by registered on company's house. Um, but they'll be mainly solopreneurs. You know, um, there's lots of coaches now because, you know, what do they say? Coaching is the new word for the unemployed and, you know, all these terrible things. Um, and you've got all these kind of consultants, coaches, advisors coming out the place. So what I think will happen is I think a lot of um, entrepreneurs will be born through this through necessity because they lost their jobs mm-hmm. through what has been a massive change in the way that the companies will think about work. And we've got industry changes and we can talk about sectors a little bit later on. So I personally think that we'll see a growth in the number of new companies formed. Mm-hmm. But in terms of, um, let's let's talk about just what I call purist entrepreneurship, sure. the kind of thing. I think there's also going to be, there's less, um, uh, you know, of a romantic ideal around it than there was, say, five, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was a little bit about like, you know, I, I saw an article where kids in school were asked what they wanted to be when they grew up and they wanted to become entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, there was a lot of kind of publicity around that. And I do think that people are starting to see that that's, that's quite a difficult route these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, I think it's going to be one of those things where you'll start to see some of the innovation stifled. Now, that's just a personal view. And I think from, from my world of kind of getting, you know, people kind of knocking on the door, asking for investment, which they do for me as much as they do for you, it's probably a slightly different conversation, mm-hmm. is um, I'm seeing... This is going to sound really bad. I'm seeing less good ideas mm. um, recently than I saw a few years back. Mm-hmm. And that's partly from what I said at the outset of this conversation is that a lot of people are just doing the same stuff. So so it's a bit of a hedged answer. I get it. But um, I think the dynamics of entrepreneurship are changing and that's not going to go backwards for some time or change for some time. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting topic. And then the other the other trend that I was going to be, you know, sort of on the same lines to ask you about is around investment, because you wonder if in some respects is the difficulty to access investment at those early stages because funds have moved up, more money has been concentrated in fewer hands. So you're seeing fewer deals get funded, but the ones that are getting funded at a much higher level. Yeah, it supports what you said, Kerry. It supports what you said. I mean, to give you a, a bit of a perspective on this of what I've seen, um, you're 100% right that there has been a pushback by, um, I'm going to say, investors that are putting their money into the funds, mm-hmm. so the institutional investors, um, to very lazy um, fund management. Mm-hmm. So you're right. I mean, I've seen um, some PE firms 
you know, go and try and raise a second or third fund or whatever their their um their cycle is on when they haven't even deployed their first that's right. fund. That's right. And you're right because the management fees are compelling. That's you know, right. you know, if, if you're taking, you know, um two percent, you know, or thereabouts of a um, a two hundred million pot, you know, you're sitting quite comfortably if you're there with a few a few kind of principal managers of that private equity firm. Okay. So I'm seeing that happen. So therefore, the the byproduct of that is this is that if the main institutional investors are now holding these firms much more to account than they did beforehand, those private equity firms are being a little bit more diligent in terms of where they invest. Mm -hmm. So the idea, and I think this then rolls down to the private equity side too. So the idea of, hey, listen, we're just going to put a few 30, 35 bets on whatever turns in the door this week. There's more rigor around getting funding. Mm -hmm. And I think I can't see that changing. Even though there's a lot of capital out there and people want to deploy behind good things, I think it's it's a little bit more people are being more prudent in terms of what they invest in. Mm -hmm. So, uh, last one I'd love to sort of along those lines is how do you think about this idea of? Uh, I mean, you have this globalization trend that we've seen over the last, you know, certainly last couple of decades in a really significant, meaningful way because of technology being able to to really shrink the world. But how do you think about this idea of almost like microeconomics of if I want to really make meaningful impact in the place where I live or the part of the world that I really want to positively affect change in, shouldn't I be investing some amount of my dollars into that directly to, to know? Because if you look at where a lot of the money centers are, it is. London, it's New York, it's San Francisco, depending on the type of asset class. And then in many respects, those dollars get invested locally, but in many cases, they're not. They're getting invested globally. And so you have these, almost these intermediaries, as opposed to saying, I really want to have impact in this area. And you know whether that is a particular country or a particular region. Um, and, and so do you see this sort of return to localization at all in your mind? Yeah, there's, there's two parts. There's two things I'm seeing and they come, um, my thoughts on this come from some recent conversations actually. So I had um, a guy called Brad Feld on my podcast yeah. recently, you know, Brad. So yeah, for people Brad, who don't know who Brad is. Right now, yes. Sorry, he's what? I have his book on my desk as we speak. Wow. So, okay. So for those who don't know who Brad Feld is, all the listeners out there, um, one of the first investors in Fitbit and um, got lucky again and invested in Guitar Hero, anyone who remembers that fantastic PS4 game. Um, and each of those exits were for his firm in the billions. Um, and he said to me, he said exactly what you said, actually. He said he's based in Boulder, Colorado, and his firm in particular looks for global, global players, so good investments, but also a fair chunk of his investments are about supporting local business and local ideas and local innovation. And I've heard that from Brad, but I've also heard it here in the UK and, and in others. And it's coming from two areas. It's coming from the investors themselves who are seeing that, you know, you can't just operate in these mega centers anymore. And, and to be frank, are these mega centers actually going to exist in the same way? Because, you know, people don't need to go to work in New York anymore to have global remit or have, you know, you don't have to turn up to the high-rise office. You can do it from your home with Zoom. So everything's going to change around that. But this is the other thing um, that I was going to throw into the mix, which is an align to your trend, but also I think supports it, is, is I'm starting to see um, 
entrepreneurship, certainly scale entrepreneurship as a force for good. Mm-hmm. So you're starting to see the bigger companies getting, whether it's, this is going to sound a little bit funny, whether it's they genuinely believe this or whether they're getting pressure sure. from communities and geographies to do it, they're starting to invest back into the communities themselves. Now, Facebook did it the other day very clumsily. I don't know if you saw this. They've, they've done a grant for small business. Mm. And they've basically said 30,000 businesses that have been affected by COVID globally are going to get grant funding from Facebook, right? Sounds great, doesn't it? Sounds a little bit CSR. Mm. But here's the catch. You have to be in a major city where a Facebook office is. Mm. So in the UK, you had to be in London. Now, of course, in in the UK, there's lots of other cities. So it was a bit of a a mistake. So, So my view to sort of summarize that is I think there's going to be investment more locally because Mm -hmm. of all the reasons we're seeing dynamic change. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see more investment coming um, in a kind of um, socioeconomic way, Mm -hmm. you know, force for good than we've seen before. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to change the role that the businesses have versus maybe the power that um, governments have had previously. Mm. Because, you know, let's face it, the big businesses in the world right now, the Amazons, the, the Facebooks, the Apples, they have more power than a lot of governments. Way more. Yeah. And I mean, so that, that's the other, you know, we did, I don't know that we have time to explore it, but I think no, that's the other, the other question is what do we do with that? Do we do what we've historically done? If you look back across many cycles, there's been a, uh, a point at which that view is this is monopolistic. We need to intervene and break them up or bring, make them a little smaller or do they truly assert themselves as a more global force for good where there is a, a compromise or some acceptance that they, they can have that for a sustained period of time? And I think it's, it's, it's unclear at this point. It's massively unclear. I, I can tell you which side of the fence I firmly sit on, right? And I'm, I'm one of enablement. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm very much that um, force for good in terms of, you know, the businesses. The business leaders who have built those companies to that level, and it's not just the, the huge ones we've named. There's a, there are a lot of other big companies out there now. I think the role of a leader these days has to have that more 360 perspective. Uh-huh. Now, where it fell down or where it has fallen down is government has traditionally come in and tried to enforce um, too much stringentness, stringentness on this. Uh-huh. And I suppose the classic example of what we're talking about is the show Billions, You've got Bobby Axelrod and, and whatever else. But my, my personal view is that it, the shape of government has going to have to change to support the growth that entrepreneurship and this has had. So therefore, my view is that in government, you're going to have to have more people who have come from the world of business to be able to have the language with some of these behemoths. Sure. Because if the dialogue isn't, isn't collaborative um, in those ways, then it has the risk of becoming a major issue of just fighting in conflict. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a fascinating uh, topic for sure. And I mean, as a as somebody who grew up in a small business family, and we saw these big box retailers come in and around and and really start to dominate what was otherwise historically an independent small business landscape, it was there was a lot of conflict because on mm-hmm. one hand, it was it was sort of this appreciation of how efficient and effective they were as operators. And on the other hand, you saw the flow of money through these communities radically change where it wasn't recycling within a community. 
it was getting just sort of siphoned out to shareholders uh, that were typically absent and somewhere else. And so I think, you know, having to think about the multiple constituents that are involved in an economy and in a business um, is, to your point, is today's leader's responsibility. And for the last few decades, it has not been. No. There's one big change, though, because there's one big change, Kerry, which I think um, means the dynamic is changing. Mm-hmm. And and that's the, that's the visibility. Yes. You know, the fact now that everything that any anyone does, you, me, small business, big business, is, is visible to everyone else in the world, mm-hmm. that um, even if you have leaders there who, who may still sit on the Bobby Axelrod view of the world, um, they're not going to be allowed to do it because the customers now have a voice. That's right. So the change. Why don't we? Um, and this has been fascinating. We've 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 done heaps tonight. This is great. I knew we would have an easy time. I knew we would have an easy time. No, it was great. But let's finish off. Um, let let's finish off with one last bit. I think to help people. So, if if you were going to start a company now, mm-hmm. right, thinking about the next decade and thinking about particularly the challenges we have in the environment right now, what type of company and what industry sector? would you be putting your money behind and your time behind? Sure. So I, uh, I continue to believe that there just is countless opportunity all over the place. I do agree that uh, many of the things that we see and you sort of spoke to are obvious, are pretty easy to start, are probably you know, not wildly scalable or innovative. They're incremental. And so I think we see a lot of incremental activity. I think some of it is still worth starting with because it may be a jumping off point. But I want people, even if, if that's an easy way to get into business, I want people with a bigger vision, with a bigger view of, of the change happening. So whether that's in something like, you know, in the, in the US, obviously, you look at something like healthcare and you say, you know, that is a, an area just ripe for so much disruption, it has been really hard to disrupt. You know, one of the things that COVID has done is really imposed a lot of future now disruption on it. And so this may be now the time to really start to think about it, but you may have to start with incremental to ultimately do something wildly innovative. And so um, I think some of it's that, that you, you've got to be somewhat realistic about how you start, um, but, but, I want, you know, that's why I love these like really visionary committed entrepreneurs, because we want to get behind them, help them start to get successful so they can think bigger. And it may be they think bigger for their next one, because funding continues to be a challenge at those early stages because of all the things that that we've talked about. And so I think there's some of that recognition. And so we've got to figure out how to encourage some of this more radical R&D, you know, next generation materials or things that are much more environmentally uh, neutral to positive. And a lot of that's going to require much more capital, much more R&D. And those continue to be challenging from my perspective in in how we do that, because, um, you know, the governments don't in many cases have the stomach for it. Um, and, And, you know, a lot of Risk capital doesn't even have the stomach for it right now, so no. I'd love you know, love love your perspective on it too. Yeah, I I, I still um, 
I've, I've, I've always been relatively gifted at the 50,000 view, right? I'm probably better there than I am in the detail. Yeah. So I sort of look at, um, at you know, where, where not, not the kind of tactical things that we're seeing now, like, oh, everyone, let's go and do online retail because, you know, mm-hmm. everyone's buying from that. I look at more systemic change. So for me, there's three or four sectors that I really love. Um, the first one is future of work. Mm-hmm. You know, I know it's inverted commas, yep. but I, I just think we haven't cracked the um, the surface yet of what that really means. Sure. So, you know, we've talked about knowledge, knowledge economy, um, but I think the idea about what does what does great, you know, typical traditional HR become? Mm-hmm. You know, one of my colleagues talks about putting the human back into HR, yeah. and I love I love that space for sure. Well, you know, and I think there's going to be a lot of change there. Well, um, recognizing that, I mean, you know, for a lot of people, for example, you know, this work from home virtual environment is actually for a lot of people wildly unhealthy. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And like that, that may be the future of work for a big number of jobs for a while. But how does how do we measure that with human needs? Yes, exactly right. So aligned with that is education. So a lot of um, the private equity businesses that I was personally involved in, the ones that I was like chief exec of and whatever else were education. Mm-hmm. And I still think there's some fundamental flaws in in education overall. Yeah. The big one for me, which is an obvious one, but it's, it's still great to me is, is the thing that financial, proper financial management and, and entrepreneurship and some of those really important skills are not taught yeah. in schools. Um, so that needs to be disrupted massively. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the sort of third area for me personally is similar to what you said, actually, Kerry. It's more in the preventative health space mm-hmm. because I still see w- whether it whether it sort of draws on um, topics of nutrition, you know, sleep. Um, p- people these days, because of the pressure that we're seeing, the amount of change, the yes. human the human body is not great with stress anyway. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And and I think people there's going to be a massive um, epidemic, if that's the word, um, around both <laughs> mental and physical um, uh, overwhelm. Yes. And I think there needs to be more done in that space. So anyone who's coming up with technologies around preventative measurements, the analytics around that, habitual stuff, um, I'm very much, I like looking at businesses like that. Yes, I would, I would totally agree. And, you know, it's been difficult. We've looked at so many of those, particularly well-being, mental health, related ones that it, it again it's it's hard they're very easy if, if it's an app as an example they're very easy to start and so you end up seeing a huge number of them and it's really trying to make that evaluation of why is this one going to find a resonant audience and a a, a model that adds way more value than it extracts and and you know, gives it some ability to, to have some sustainability to it, right? Like that. Those are those are really hard to to figure out. Yeah, my uh, my podcast um, that I, the episode that actually came out, uh, I think it was this morning actually um, on scale up your business was um, discipline. Mm. And what I talk about that is that we all kind of you know to your point, we all kind of know what we should be doing. Mm-hmm. Right, but we give up um, too easily, and that's partly because we don't, we get we don't see the benefit straight away. It's delayed um, gratification, right. and I and I think there's I something around that. health is a is a big reason why that's been such a difficult topic. Yeah, no, indeed. Well, listen, I think we're at time. Um, that was an awesome conversation, Kerry. As we as we thought it might be. <laughs> really glad we could do it, and I, yeah, this could be a, probably a weekly one. 
for that. Well, the handoff, I mean, the handoff between what you do and, and the area that I play in is interesting. But, you know, again, the, the intersection, we should probably do something else on the intersection. So what happens at the join point? That's that's obviously a, another conversation to have at some point. Yeah. But I think people would love to know at what point people change. I mean, it's not it's not like it's a one day you change from startup to scale up. But there are, it's like a, a, there is a merge. There's a dynamic. It'd be interesting to sort of see those characteristics. So we'd have to, let's do this again at some point. That'd be great. All right. Thanks everybody for joining us on Scale Up Your Business today, our live stream. And as I said, this will be coming out on a future episode of Scale Up Your Business and on your podcast as well, Kerry. Yes, I will release it on uh, Accelerate Show sometime very soon. So look for Nick and I's conversation there. And thanks for joining me today. Okay. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Operate Podcast. If you like this conversation, as a favor to me, you can rate us, review us, or subscribe, or tell your friends. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Operate Podcast. Until next week, get out there and operate.